morning. We're, uh, we're continuing our series on marriage um, because, as great as it is, <laughs> it's, uh, it's got two sides to it, doesn't it? And, um, and we get to kind of look at the scriptures and talk about some biblical principles and see where we can go with that. And I want to dive right in. So if you can, just take out your note sheet and you can take notes if you want or follow along. But we're trying, what I'm trying to do here, and if you know me or if you've been at Antioch long, uh, I'd rather theorize for an hour than, than talk about like uh, principles or little things that you can do. Because one of my, th- my thoughts in life is we all know about a million things we should be doing. Um, it's not having an extra 10 or 20 or 30 that's really going to change things. But it's really sometimes uh, understanding and kind of having those aha moments that, that change our paradigms that really makes for change. However, what I want to do this morning is, is just... Um, just talk straight application about marriage and relationships. The first thing I want to talk about is is just this, and it's going to kind of be the theme as we we go down here, but it's it's that we need to pursue relational maturity. And what I mean by relational maturity is is Christ-likeness, maturity, fullness in our relationships. There's a couple reasons why I think that's just at the heart of all this. It's, It's because the most mature person in the room has the relationships in the greatest harmony. Have you ever noticed that? Um, The most mature person in the room has the relationships that are in the greatest harmony. I've seen really edgy personalities that are mature, and even though they're so edgy, their relationships are in harmony. Because even if they step on toes, or even if people step on their toes, there's a way that, that it gets worked out. And I've seen... Very soft personalities because of ways they might internalize things or, or different, different parts of immaturity have odd or difficult or strained relationships. And so relational harmony is, is more uh, a characteristic of maturity than it is personality. I think sometimes we miss that. But the person with the most maturity in the room usually has the relationships in the greatest harmony. And what I'm beginning to realize is that we don't have a marriage problem. That's kind of the sticker we put on it. Uh, marriages are just in, they're in turmoil. And I would say we, it's not that we have a, a marriage problem. We have a maturity problem. We have a character problem. We have a conflict resolution problem. We have an entitlement problem. We have a relationship problem and a, and a health problem. And we have to be willing to address those things um, we have to be willing to grow and mature if we want to have the fruit of those things. Uh, there's a saying that says, don't ask God to guide your steps if you're not willing to move your feet. Um, let's not pray for healthy marriages if we're not willing to put the work into nurturing those marriages. And let's not expect healthy relationships if we're not willing to try, try and grow in, in our capacity to have and to maintain healthy relationships. So the first point this morning is this. And these will be a little long, so I'll abbreviate them kind of after the first one here. But relational maturity has to do with Christ. If you want, you can turn to Ephesians 5.21 real quick.
Ephesians chapter 5, there's a whole paragraph on marriage, but it begins in a really interesting way. And if you look at it, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it begins talking about husbands and wives, but it begins the whole thing with a mutual submission. And I think with marriage, we usually begin to tee off on that. Well, who's submitting to who and what does it look like for man, for woman, things like that. Um, There are different types, different theological categories or labels for how you want to box up or size or define marriage. If if you've been around Christianity a long time, you might know some of them. If you're new to Christianity, you're like, what labels? What are you talking about? Um, Just so you know, there's there's different types of uh, viewpoints on how you look at marriage, and I don't ascribe to any of them. I think it's just completely foreign to try and put a grid over the top of marriage. I think every person that's married has an organic relationship it's going to find its own stride and and we need to come to these passages and we need to look to learn what we can and always submit ourselves to scripture as best that we can okay Um, but in this passage the submission is mutual and the funny thing is is the real eye to it isn't the submitting and who's doing the submitting the real eye to it is why we're submitting to each other, what our North Star is, how we're oriented when we come into this relationship with our spouse, and it's out of reverence for Christ. The interesting thing about marriage, I realize from this passage, is you can't make a triangle out of two points. And marriage is supposed to be a triangle. And we do it out of reverence for Christ, that which we do. When, uh, when you become a Christian, you, you usually are taught by more mature Christians how to kind of go about what are called the spiritual disciplines. And the spiritual disciplines is just kind of a hook for um, prayer, which, which is a discipline that we engage in. And it becomes easier over time and more natural. It's just communication with God. Um, scripture reading, reading your Bible, which has fallen on hard times lately, but it's a discipline. It's, uh, you'll hear the phrase, a quiet time, and it means kind of whether it's the night or the morning, it's when you get up, you grab your Bible, a cup of coffee or whatever, and you just spend time reading Scripture, meditating on Scripture, and, and praying it through uh, in your relationship with God. And, and that's a spiritual discipline. And there's more spiritual disciplines. Solitude uh, is a spiritual discipline. Fasting, if you really want to get over on the edge. Uh, even community, what we're doing today is a spiritual discipline. It's a, a choice we make to value church. Uh, my kids are frustrated a lot when we have to go to church. And the funny thing is, is, is uh, I don't even engage that, and I kind of laugh at it, and I'm like, you know what? I want for my kids, not just that they go to church, I want my family to be the last family to leave church. My wife grew up that way. She was the last to always leave church, and some of her best memories are just the fullness of community and, and joy that comes from just the, that freeness, running around the halls and and seeing faces and, and getting to learn who those people are. And, and so I laugh at my kids when they're like, we don't want to go to church. I'm like, yeah, you're going to be the last one to leave. Um, it's a discipline, and I'm going to teach you this, and I'm going to value this as your dad because it's part of the spiritual life. Okay? Now here's, here's the pivot. 
we learn these disciplines when we become Christians. Usually, we're, a lot of us are single, at least, when we become Christians. Some of us are, become Christians when we're married. But we learn these disciplines as individual disciplines. We learn these things as individual disciplines. When we become married and we submit to each other out of reverence for Christ, one of the things we got to begin to learn is that we're not just putting Christ first in our life now, we're putting Christ first in our marriage. And that means that a lot of the spiritual disciplines that we used to apply to ourselves individually, we now have to apply corporately. So we, we begin to retool what it looks like to pray and what it looks like to read the Bible and what it looks like to go to community. Um, my wife and I, kind of what we've developed with our kids, and this is what I want, what I'm realizing is you might, you might be able to choose five memories that your kids will have for their whole life. I mean, they're going to have some others that you wish they didn't, okay? But if you really want, you know, you know what I'm saying? What, what, what do you remember from your childhood? You're going to tick off a couple things really quickly, and then the rest begins to kind of all jumble together. So if you, if you really had control of five key memories, how would you go about creating those memories? And the number one thing would be repetition, creating traditions. And so at our family, what we do is we, we have family time right before we go to bed every night. We gather our kids by the fireplace. Um, we've decided now to just let Ashlyn roam the house because she ruins it. So <laughs> she'll graduate to family time when she's probably three or four but we get around, and, and it's our prayer time. It's our prayer time. And we do it as a family corporately. Uh, just so, I mean, this is an interesting thought. Let me kind of, does that, yeah, okay. If, if you're newer to, to being a Christian and, and you're newer to prayer, uh, it's not very organic. It's a grid, but a way of looking at prayer um, is the Acts model. And it's just adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then what's called supplication, which really just means making your, your requests, kind of putting your needs before God. And when you become a new Christian, maybe someone will, will kind of say, hey, look, this is a great way to think through prayer. And it usually begins, this is a lot like the, the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew, uh, where Jesus te- teaches his disciples how to pray, it's a lot like the Psalms, but it's basically adoration. It's like, God, man, uh, you're bigger than, than a lot of this, and, and uh, man, I really, I really value your love. I value your grace. I value that you're present. I value that I'm able to pray to you right now. Uh, I value, you know, but it's, it's kind of adoration. It's just setting, setting it in its place, and it's, God, you're big. And then um, confession is, I'm not. Man, God, I don't get it right. I didn't get today right. Man, it's frustrating, and, and I'm sorry. And, and, and then you kind of come back to thanksgiving. But God, your grace, your forgiveness, your acceptance, like Justin was talking about, the way you see me as a, as a parent with a child, um, man, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for your grace and the, be- uh, the new beginnings almost every morning that I can start over and that I don't have to carry this guilt or this weight around with me. And then that leads into supplication, which is, God, here are my needs. And, and those needs then are different because of the way we've kind of gone through this prayer. Our needs become not silly things. Uh, they become spiritual things. God, this relationship's really difficult. 
I need help with that relationship, or God, heal my marriage, or God, you know. So we kind of lay the real things in front of God instead of just making stuff up to ask God for. And so that's kind of a, a model, but what I've learned with, with my kids in our family times is we start with thanksgiving, and then we realize that that goes into talking about God. And that's kind of all we get is T and A. Um, the uh, uh, Thanksgiving, um, so we start with our kids, we circle up, and, and we say, what are you thankful for? What was the best part of today? And we sit there for as long as we can, and we help them really get beyond, we got to go eat out, you know, or whatever. And they begin to talk about oh, the way the teacher interacted with me, or that affirmation, or my sister did this for me. And that was so special of her, and I'm thankful for that. We really teach our kids to grab at things that they're thankful for, and then we tie that back to our God being a good God. And we're not setting them up for failure that it's all circumstantial stuff, and if that disappeared, then God's a bad God. We really try and get at the heart of it, and then as a result of that, that, that goes into um, we have a good God. God gave us these relationships. God gave us uh, these things, and so... We, we've, we're learning how to try and build corporate prayer into the, the structure of our marriage and our family. And so somehow, some way, we submit when we're married, we submit when we're in deep relationship, out of reverence for Christ, we submit to each other, which means we put Christ in that relationship, and that means that the disciplines are no longer just individual disciplines, they're corporate disciplines. And if we're going to have healthy relationships, we have to explore that. And we have to try and figure out a rhythm that works for our marriage, for us, for our families. But at the end of the day, that's got to be at the center. You can't have a, a two, just a, two, a triangle with two points. Uh, I'm going to try and go back. Did, did the thing I wrote ever show up? No? I'm going to have to rewrite it. Whoa, there it is. Um, all right, number two. Number two is this. Relational maturity has to do with sacrifice. Relational maturity has to do with sacrifice. You don't change other people, but you can create circumstances or environments conducive for other people to change. Ephesians, we just read at 5.21, where we come to the submit part. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You really see that our posture needs to be one of a, of a servant, one of sacrifice. Um, let's read 1 Peter 2.21. This will be a familiar verse to many of you. It's where Charles Sheldon wrote the book, In His Steps, uh, from. And the book, In His Steps, became later a 1990s Christian phenomenon with these bracelets that, that were WWJD. Remember that? What would Jesus do? All right, so 1 Peter 2.21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, therefore leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. You have been called because Christ suffered for you, therefore leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
there's a lot of places in the Bible where, where we see that the sufferings of Christ, if we follow Christ, will, will also therefore be our sufferings. If we're with Christ doing what Christ did, a lot of, a lot of what he endured and a lot of what came his way is, is going to also, by parity of reasoning, come our way. And so when we follow Christ, when we walk in his steps, um, not only do we get the joys that he had, we also get the opportunity to serve and to suffer like he did. And so when we become Christians, one of the things we have to arm ourselves with in our minds is that this is not uh, a success formula for a life of ease, but it, it is a true formula for a full life that includes sacrifice and suffering. What we begin to realize with mature people, with, with relational maturity, with Christ-like people, is that they usually work the hardest. So the person who has the most harmony in their relationships in the room is probably the one who's working the hardest to maintain those relationships, foregoing the most in terms of offense, turning the other cheek the most, uh, going to people and initiating difficult conversations the most, um, but they're suffering the most. So relational maturity has to do with sacrifice. There's a responsibility to make marriages work. There's, I think, a false paradigm that we have sometimes that marriages are like puzzles. And they're supposed to just fit together. And the truth of it is, is, is there's no perfect marriage because there's no perfect people. Uh, but they don't just fit together. Marriages are things that are supposed to grow together over time. Does that make sense? So because it's something that's supposed to grow together over time or grow into health, that means there's difficult tension points that have to be nurtured. And the way that gets nurtured is sacrifice and serving one another and being willing to suffer or bear with things. And so relational maturity has to do with sacrifice. There's a really interesting thing, I think, in America. And I kind of want to bring this out, and it's important, but it's the idea of entitlement. I think if I say that, most of you go, yeah, yeah, I know there's this thing called entitlement, and I know that most Americans feel entitled. And we, we come from a cultural standpoint of always, first and foremost, uh, seeing our, our rights. Um, there are, there's two things here. There's rights and responsibilities. If I have rights, that means you have a responsibility. And if you have rights, therefore, others have a responsibility to meet your rights. Does that make sense? Rights and responsibilities are two sides of a coin. So communist, socialist government structures, which do they focus on the most? Anybody? Responsibilities, right? Your duty to the collective. Your duty, your responsibility to the collective, but you as an individual is secondary. Uh, which do you think America tends to, to make predominant? Rights. My rights, individual rights, uh, personal rights. And we'll talk about responsibility, civic responsibility. Your, your responsibility is a good American. But that always kind of feels like elementary school type stuff. And, and maybe it's kind of in there. Uh, it, it's probably stronger in certain parts of the country, etc. But, but it's always secondary in America to our notion of personal and individual rights. If you are locked in a position, one, because of that being the dominant paradigm, two, 
because we're a consumer culture, which means you're always in the prime spot of being the buyer or the consumer. Does that make sense? Uh, the one that kind of gets to dictate. Because of these things, if we're always focusing on rights, it leads to an entitlement mentality, doesn't it? It means I have these rights. You have obligation to meet my rights. How do you think that works in marriage? And this is the, this is the part of marriage that was kind of eye-opening for me about a year ago when I really was doing a wedding and I was talking about the vows. And all of a sudden, it kind of popped into my mind that if we're coming at marriage with an entitlement mentality, we hear the other person's vows more than we mean our own vows. Because our own vows are our obligation. It's our promise. It's our word. It's our commitment. The other person's vows are the things that we feel are our right, that they owe us, that there's an obligation for them to give to us. And if we're trained to always see this more, what we deserve, and we're not trained to always um, lock ourselves into our duty and our obligation and our word, we're going to come into marriage very focused on the other person meeting our needs. Does that make sense? I would want to submit to you that a healthy marriage is going to be the opposite. That what you see and what you think are your vows. You're not looking for the other person to always be perfect with their vows. You're realizing that your vows were unconditional. If you start with the other person's vows, you make your vows secondary and conditional. If you, husband or wife, are doing what you owe me, then I'll do this in return. Does that make sense? If a certain set of conditions are met, then I'll respond. But you owe me something. I deserve something in this marriage. And if you're not fulfilling that, if, if you're like only batting, uh, you know, 400, then I have the right to be disappointed in you. I have the right maybe to go find other ways of filling my needs. But when we make these vows that say for richer or for poorer in sickness and in health, if we really understand our own vows, it's saying that even if the other person can't meet your expectations or needs, sickness, poverty, regardless of their ability to maintain their vows, you are promising and obligating yourself to live up to these high and holy ideals. There's a, a Christ-likeness about making marriage covenants. Covenant language is, is thoroughly biblical. And so we come to marriage and we begin out of reverence for Christ and then we begin to realize if we're doing this thing and if we're building this thing out of reverence for Christ, we therefore have to be servant-minded and arm ourselves that even if we're suffering your failures, that we will seek to rise above that and still do the best that we can. And relational maturity in marriage involves sacrifice. And there's no escaping it. I, uh, 
I read something this week from a, a marriage counselor, and he said out of 10,000 people he's seen in the last 30 years, 10,000 people who have passed through his door, the major complaints are in this order, sex, money, children, and in-laws. But he says the real problems are selfishness and greed. Now marriage is difficult, and if you come into it childish or immature or selfish, it's going to be incredibly difficult. Because you're always going to value the one over the amalgam of the two. You know, marriage is two people becoming one. And if you value yourself and getting your own way and having your own life so much, you're never going to yield enough. You're never going to submit to each other enough for this thing to grow up that is a, a union or a marriage or, or a togetherness or this whole kind of idea of the two becoming one. It's difficult. Now, I remember years ago in seminary when, when the whole grass is greener idea, and we know that metaphor. It's like on the other side of the hill where I can't see, there's this idea that things might be better. And the phrase for that is the grass, greener pastures. You know, that if I, if I go wander like a, an animal over to the other side of the hill, I'm going to find greener pastures. And so the saying becomes, we think that the grass is greener on the other side of the hill. And when it finally occurred to me that grass is something that has greenness or health as a potential. Okay, greenness, the color greenness, and, and that represents health, Okay, is not a fixed property of grass, right? All grass is not green. It's not a fixed property of grass. It's a potential that grass has. How do you actualize that potential of grass? What's needed for grass to actually uh, fulfill the potential of being healthy and therefore green? It needs to be watered, right? So I remember the first time it dawned on me that the grass is greener, the grass is greener, where you water it. If you want green grass, don't go hunting for it. Just water it. In marriage, in, in your relationship with your spouse, grow in Christ-likeness and maturity and be willing to suffer and sacrifice and, and serve and nurture the relationship right here. Because even if there's grass greener on the other side, the reason it's greener is because somehow it's being nurtured. And if you get there, if you ruin this grass, you might just ruin that grass. So, so get good at watering, right? Here's a quote um, I'd like to read to you. Uh, this is from Gary Thomas, who wrote a book called Sacred Marriage. It says this, Any situation that calls me to confront my, my selfishness has enormous spiritual value. And I slowly began to understand that the real purpose of marriage may not be happiness as much as it is holiness. Not that God has anything against happiness or that happiness and holiness are by, by nature mutually exclusive. But looking at marriage through the lens of holiness began to put it into an entirely new perspective for me. Marriage, in some sense, perfects us. It allows us to serve and to suffer and to be more Christ-like. And, and so some of you, if this is working well in a two-sided relationship, I think it's the greatest blessing in the world. If there's mutual submission and you guys are together 
working equally on this relationship, it's the greatest blessing in the world. If you happen to be in a one-sided relationship, I'm sure many this morning are, where it's all give, all give. I think this is the one thing you get to hold on to. And that's that although the chance for happiness is really bleak in that relationship, your chance for holiness is astronomical. Your ability to perfect yourself through suffering and through difficulty to hang in there, to endure, to be patient, all of these things with nothing in return, only out of reverence for Christ and only out of a sense of covenant obligation that your commitments were unconditional and even if it's one-sided, you're going to have to just... In those relationships, if you know those people, there's an opportunity for a a relationship with God, there's an opportunity for you to have an intimacy with Christ that I think few other people are able to have because you have to lean so hard on him for strength. And so this idea of marriage and holiness uh, is not just for for those in a healthy two-sided marriage. Um, This is something you can hang on to in a one-sided marriage that Christ walking with you as you share in his sufferings in some sense. Christ fulfilled covenant obligation even though we weren't faithful in return. Your chance for understanding that and having closeness with Christ is unbelievable. And I don't say that flippantly. Please don't hear me that way. Um, If you're in a one-sided marriage, I guarantee you, because I know dozens of you, I I can promise you, you get more of my prayers than anyone else in this church. Um, because I can look back at the last four years and say that to you. Uh, it grieves me. They're the things that, that frustrate me because they're so hard to fix. They're not problems that have solutions. They're, they're sufferings that you endure if you're in that. And I just pray that you would see the opportunity for oneness with Christ and for holiness through that um, and that that would sustain you. And, and uh, yeah. The next one, relational maturity has to do with humility. If you turn to Philippians chapter 2, we see kind of the the creed of humility in Scripture. This is just a paragraph of defining what humility really looks like, and it's uh, all a picture of Christ and, and Paul is writing this letter and he says this at the beginning of chapter 2 in the book of Philippians. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or envy or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Count, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, meaning in that relationship is where this paradigm is going to come. And Christ Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, because of that humility, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see in this verse two things. We see humility, but we also see what Peter talks about and has talked about in other places. That God exalts the humble. But he brings low the proud. That humility and not thinking highly of yourself is the thing that God can work with. It's it's the clay that he can mold. And we have to realize that relational maturity has to do with humility. I worked at Pine Summit when I became a Christian. Pine Summit's a Christian camp for uh, kids. And and they bring college kids in from around the country for that summer. And you, you play with them in the pool. You rock climb. You do all sorts of crazy stuff. And, you'd bring, and I was a, a baby believer, and most of the kids they bring in were from uh, Bible colleges. And, and I was just, the first year I was there, I was just trying to figure it all out. Well, what they tell you the first week when you get there is that everybody takes a rotation of spending a whole week doing janitorial, cleaning all the toilets uh, in the camp. And then every Saturday, all the staff um, turn the camp over and, and clean it that way. Well, there was about a third of the kids that freaked out. And they were, they were really upset. You didn't say anything about this in the agreement. When you were rec- recruiting to bring us, you didn't say anything about cleaning toilets. I will not clean toilets. I refuse to clean toilets. Um, you know, they provided gloves and all. I mean, but, but they just, there was a third of the group that just absolutely were not willing to do it. And I remember thinking to myself, because everything we were talking about that week, it was the kind of the week-long training for the staff, Everything we were talking about was serving, serving these kids, loving on these kids, giving our life for these kids, and it was all serving. And then all of a sudden we start talking about the, the practical things of who's going to do the janitorial and the, the rotation for that. And you got these, these kids that are Christians, these college kids that are Christians, and they're just like, uh-uh. And it totally cheapened everything they'd been saying all week long about serving. I began to realize they were camp counselors because they thought it was fun not because they really wanted to serve. And so when you really put somebody in an environment, it it manifests or shows what's really going on and kind of in their heart. And, you know, I want to apply this to to marriage briefly. When you take your vows and and everything's fun about marriage, sometimes you you can listen to people and they're like, "You you don't even know what you're saying. But when you get into marriage and you get into the difficult situations, it really shows what's in your heart, whether you're willing to be humble or not. Um, These are kids' magnets. Caitlin helped me find some magnets, and she came back with these, which are actually really cool. My kids want them when I'm done. Uh, But it, it repels here. And the way these magnets work is when you flip the polarity, that's when it attracts, right? Okay? In arguments, in relational arguments, there's one side and there's another side. And they come into conflict with each other. And this person feels so strongly that the other one is wrong to the point where it just makes you so mad. Other person feels the same way. Guess what? 
Are they looking at the same set of data? I mean, basic maturity principle 101 here. They, they both have a different story, don't they? Okay. The more mature one realizes there's wiggle room here, that it's not 100% my story is absolutely true and 100% their story is absolutely wrong, um, but there's probably a neutral perspective or things that I might not even know, and the mature person does what? Yields. Okay? The mature person is willing to take a step back and not try and win the argument and bowl the other person over by force. The mature person is willing to be humble and say, it's not just about me winning. It's about the relationship here and restoring unity and bringing about greater clarity and and through this, growing together and making this marriage become what it ought to be. And so you have a choice, and I just want to frame it this way because maybe you'll remember it. In every conflict, you have a choice. You can try to be the one who wins, or you can try to be the one who's mature. In every conflict, your goal can be to come out of the conflict either as the victor, or your goal can be to come out of the conflict as the one who is able to be more mature. And your ability to, to be mature in this instance is dictated by your humility, your, your willingness to not make it all about being right, all about yourself, but willing to lower yourself, yield, and explore other options. It's humility. Even if you're right, Jesus was right in every way. And he said, that's not going to get me anywhere. It's not here for me to win. I'm here to redeem things. I'm here to build relationships. And out of that, you get humility. Proverbs 26, verses 4 through 5 says this, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. I think it's funny it says him here, because maybe that guys are more bullheaded, right? Answering a fool according to his folly means you're, you're being just as bullheaded or just as narrow-minded as, as he is. Listen to what it says, though, because that leaves you with the thought, then I'm just going to ignore him because he's a jerk, right? That's the thought it leaves you with. Listen to the way Proverbs goes on. He says, but answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. If you don't reconcile this situation, you just walk away, you don't redeem anything. You don't bring health to anything. You don't nurture anything. And so Proverbs even says, you got to answer You just can't do it like this. You've got to provide an answer so that this situation where there's folly has a chance to be redeemed or reconciled or fixed or nurtured. Take somebody to be more mature in in an argument. Somebody has to be willing to, to go for maturity, not go for the win. If we can bless our enemies, which Scripture tells us to do, Scripture says bless our enemies, then we can certainly bless our spouse doesn't matter how much you just get frustrated. You've got to be more mature than that. Um, the presenting problems in relational difficulties, it's interesting. If you do any pre-marriage counseling, husband and wife come in, or couple before they're even married, they come in. You get him to say what's wrong, her to say what's wrong. They get really you know, emotionally in- engaged. What you begin to realize is the presenting problem, the problem they say is, is what, what the beginning point is, is usually not the real problem. 
And the marriage counselor draws out the real problem for them to see so that they can maybe work on it. Here's what I'd submit to you. If a marriage counselor can see beneath the surface, so can you if you're willing to be humble enough and mature enough to look at the conflict from a position of humility and a little bit more um, from a neutral standpoint. If a marriage counselor in listening to both sides of the story can figure out the real issue, so can you. And I would just counsel, strive for the maturity and the humility that would allow you to resolve problems as they come up in your marriage. Now, if you are at a standpoint where things are, are really uh, tense and you can't resolve it, you've got to have the humility to be able to get help in your marriage. And this is mainly to you guys. Uh, there's a couple women that won't go to marriage counseling, but it's usually the wife saying, let's get an outside party, and the guy says, absolutely not, because I won't, you know, it'll affect my cool factor. Uh, the FBI will probably get it on record somewhere that I went to counseling, you know. You've got to have enough humility to get help. I, I listened to a pastor when I was in grad school. I used, would drive around listening to tapes, and a very well-known pastor, um, and, and at pastor's conferences to thousands of other pastors, he'd say, the best decision I ever made was we were dirt poor, newly married, just started a church, and we were fighting like cats and dogs, and when I was about to lose my marriage, and he goes, the best decision I ever made was I took out a credit card, and I went into debt to get marriage counseling. And, you know, you're not supposed to go into debt, you know, all that. Other this pastor was like, best decision I ever made. I put marriage counseling on a credit card. Um, if you need help, be humble enough to go get it. Last week, uh, just as an aside, the Chiravellis, um came up here and they're doing a, a marriage small group. And they pitched it to everybody. We're doing a marriage small group. It's about communication. It's about health and all that. And there was like some 35 couples that signed up for it. Uh, so this week I stand here and tell you that Bill and Leela have quit their day jobs. And uh, <laughs> actually what we did is we, we surfaced three other couples and, and so there's now uh, Terry and Carol Randstad are, are going to do a six-week kind of marriage uh, uh, small group. Brandon and Carrie Reynolds are going to do one. I think somebody else is going to do one. If you want to get into a marriage small group, just talking about communication, just close-ended commitment, six, week, six weeks-ish, and meet other couples, just on your connection card that you can put in the offering bucket in a little bit here, just write marriage small group or something like that. Uh, and just make it fun to work on nurturing your marriage and your relationship. All right, uh, we'll, we'll move along fast here. Um, relational maturity has to do with grace. We, the opposite of this is what I would call um, relational legalism. The opposite is what I would call relational legalism, which means you have rules, laws, expectations, uh, categories, formulas that you put onto your spouse, and that's the only kind of way that you see things. And, and therefore, you're going to see every part of where they go wrong and everything that they do that doesn't fit kind of the formula. And you create a very legalistic, heavy culture. And what I would say is you want to create a culture of grace. 
Philippians 4.8 says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. If that's true kind of a, from a holistic standpoint, that we focus on the good and we nurture the good and we don't dwell on and nitpick about the bad, how much more true is that in our marriages, the most important relationship that we have in our life? 1 Corinthians 13, and, and if you've never read the Bible, you've certainly heard this at weddings, but it's the love passage that Paul writes, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love is patient and it's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. If you have an NIV, it says love keeps no record of wrongs. An immature marriage is one where you keep day by day or week by week, month by month, you you keep tally of something that bothers you and frustrates you about that other person. And then it's like a red line in a tachometer. You begin to just just stew on it, and then eventually you blow like a volcano um, because you've just got all this pent-up frustration about this silly little thing. And your spouse fights back tooth and nail because they're like, you're making something out of nothing. Because in their mind, it's like, I, I just made a comment. Or I, you know what I'm saying? If you really create an environment of grace, you accept the weaknesses of the person you're married And you realize that by focusing on the strengths, you can nurture that person, help that person grow, help work with the things and and change it. You're not fixed and rigid. You're, You're creating an environment of grace. Christ doesn't look at our weaknesses and our faults. He looks at the gifts and the talents and the hopes and the desires that you have, and he works with those and he edifies those, and he grows those. And, and in church, we're supposed to do th- the same things. We, we can come to church legalistically. You can sit here legalistically and have categories and rules and critique the worship and critique me and critique everything else, and, and it becomes really legalistic because you know how it should be. Well, great. I could critique it more than you. I mean, if you put me there, I could critique me more than you could critique me, and I could win, win the critique off because that's what rules are about, right? It's about winning and better. But... What does it say in the Bible about how you come to to, to the church, to the body of Christ? It says you have all these gifts, and your gifts are for the edification of the body. It's for bringing your talents, your strengths, your gifts to make it better and to nurture it. That's why nobody here has the gift of criticism. Nobody here has the gift of, of a critical heart. Because it, by definition, is non-nurturing, non-edifying. And the gifts, it says, in Ephesians, in Corinthians, and in Romans, are given for the building up of the body. So if you have a spiritual gift that comes from God, it's not a critical spirit. And if it's not a critical spirit in this context, then it's not a gift in your marriage either. So you've got to get rid of it. And replace it with what really is there. Something that will edify. And you have to create a culture of grace. Um, This is not uh, couples ice dancing where everything has to be flawless. And if your spouse makes a mistake, it costs you guys the the gold medal. And you're angry for four years with this person until the next 
um, Olympics and then you act like you guys are best friends. I don't know, right? But what we focus on tends to become bigger in our minds. When we dwell on something, it becomes bigger in our minds. And if we dwell on the strengths, they become bigger in our minds. And if we fixate on the weaknesses, guess what? They become bigger in our minds. And the, the mature person, relational maturity, is someone who has grace and therefore is willing to work with the good and focus on the potential and not just nitpick kind of at the weaknesses. Let me read you this quote. This is from Chuck Swindoll. He says, remember this. It's never too late to start doing what is right. You may have made a mess of this marriage, another marriage, or even several marriages, but don't allow that to keep you from making your current situation a tribute to God's grace. It's never too late to start anew. The same is true in any society. We can rise above the failures of the past by choosing God's way over our own. Unconditional love means unconditional respect, unconditional affection, unconditional hope in what could be. Are you waiting for your spouse to deserve or earn your love, respect? Are you waiting for your spouse to earn your affection? Create a culture of grace. I'm going to just, this last one, I'll, I'll put it here, but we don't have time to talk about it. But relational maturity has to do with loving other people in their language. Uh, guys and girls don't speak the same language. Let me, someone sent this around this week um, who leads a small group in Antioch, but it's guys' rules in marriage. So th- these are the guys' rules. Number one rule of guys in marriage. Men are not mind readers. You read my mind. Um, Number two, learn to work the toilet seat. You're a big girl. If it's up, put it down. (laughs) We need it up. You need it down. You don't hear us complaining about you leaving it down all the time. Logic, right? Uh, Here's another rule for guys in marriage. Crying is blackmail. Crying is blackmail. Um, Yes and no are perfectly acceptable answers to almost every question. Come to us with a problem only if you want help solving it. That's what we do. Sympathy is what your girlfriends are for. (laughs) If you think you're fat, you probably are. Don't ask us. If something we said can be interpreted two ways and one, uh, one of the ways makes you sad or angry, we definitely meant the other one. Um, whenever possible, please say whatever you have to say during commercials. <laughs> There's some that I can't read. Um, <laughs> I'm in shape. Round is a shape. Um, hey, look, those things are funny. I could have read them all and it would have been really funny, but... Those things are funny because they're partly true. Not totally true. You can't totally put men in a box and women in a box and say that the wife has to fit this picture and the, and the husband has to fit this picture. And you can't totally do that stuff. But you also can't go to the other extreme and say there are no things that generally tend to be true 
about men or about guys and about women. This isn't a Christian thing where Christians try and stereotype wives and, and husbands. The book Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus was a very popular secular book. And it nailed a lot of things kind of to the wall. Okay? There are differences between guys and gals. It doesn't make one better, one worse. It doesn't mean that your marriage has to be constituted a certain way. It means that if you're smart, you figure out your spouse. And you don't project yourself onto them. Part of love means you love in their language. The incarnation, which means God taking on human form in Jesus Christ and loving us, part of the whole thing about that was God showing that true love packages itself in the way that the other person hears it best. So we got to learn to love in your spouse's strength. A couple quick books, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, great. Um, but the five love languages by Gary Chapman that talks about the way we receive love best is usually the way we give love, which might not be the way our spouse receives it. It's a great book to read. And probably the, the best book that, that's out there right now on marriage is called Love and Respect. And it's a phenomenal read. We have it at the book cart. But just pick it up and go through it. Shake it out. Find what works. Throw away whatever doesn't work. But it's a phenomenal book that hits at this whole issue of if we're really mature... If we really want to grow this thing and, and grow marriage and grow our relationships, we have to do the hard work of learning how to love in somebody else's language. We have to learn how to incarnate our desires and our expressions and our grace and, and everything else that we're trying to say within this marriage. So relational maturity means that we love others in their language. And let's just go ahead and shut it down. And uh, they'll come out. We're going to take the offering and sing special music. Let me just ask you a couple questions in closing. Are you, are you growing your marriage or are you growing not your marriage? Meaning there's nothing neutral in life. You're either feeding one thing or you're starving it. Are you growing your marriage or are you growing not your marriage? Are you, are you feeding your marriage or are you starving it? Are you approaching your marriage are you approaching your marriage and your relationships out of reverence for Christ? Is what you do motivated by Christ and not your desires or emotions or immaturity? Are you being as smart about your marriage as you are with your business, your workout plan, your TV, TiVo, watching schedule? Are you being strategic about how you grow and nurture your marriage? Marriage is the picture of Christ in the church. It's a marriage of covenant. It's a marriage of sacrifice. It's, it's a picture of maturity. And my prayer would just be for this church that we would all be able to grow in our maturity and our ability to nurture the tight relationships, the marriages uh, in our life. Let's pray. Father, we commit this to you. It's your love for us, your grace for us that gives us the ability to have grace, to have love for others. Let us be anchored to you. Let us look to you for strength. Let us look to you for hope. Regardless of where we're at in our marriages, please, God, do give us hope and give us the strength to continue. Fill us up. Teach us about yourself. Give us the disciplines that would help mature us. Whether we're going to be married, whether we are married, whether we have been married, just give us the disciplines, the patterns, the mindset, the motivation to grow and become more like you, Christ. We pray that in Jesus' name.